Good morning. I'm happy to be here. It was the general consensus over the weekend that I did better with that ear thing than with this. The ear thing. Do you know how to set it up? The ear thing? Okay. Although this seems fine. Do you hear fine? Fine, fine? No good? <laughs> okay, the ear thing is coming, so then we'll put it that way, and it seemed to work out fine. How many people were here on New Year's Day? Oh, that's terrific. Uh, so how many people weren't here on New Year's Eve? So happy New Year, really. This is the first time we're meeting, and I'm, I was thinking of... Um, special things that we could do to commemorate. I do have a special, the topic I want to talk about is a good New Year topic, but I, um, I just noticed as I walked in this morning that there's that big video screen there that's just showing, you know, what, it's a, it looks like just what classes are coming up and what things you could, what programs you could take here at Spirit Rock. And, uh, okay, we're going to try this. that better? Oh. <laughs> so I came in, always last minute lesson plan. I said, there it is, it's just going by. I mean, it's all interesting. There are two or three things coming up that people might want to look at. But I, I thought, someone just sent me, uh, among the many emails of Happy New Year emails, someone sent me a montage of uh, YouTube uh, clips, I guess, um, including the one, it's called uh, People Helping Animals. Have you seen that one? It comes around every once in a while, or you see one or another. So somebody has put together a whole montage of one after another of people helping animals. So I uh, 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 somehow what the first one I saw was someone on a, on a, a fishing boat, commercial boat, where there's a dog floating out at sea, but clearly a, a dog that's not supposed to be there. It's not a sea animal. And uh, here's this guy. He's, he comes down. Oh, and the dog is on a piece of ice. That's right. It's on an ice floe, so it's north. Here comes this guy, lowers himself into the water. He's got um, mates on the boat who are watching him. And he maneuvers himself over with a, 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 a skiff over to where the dog is, and he pulls the dog off this little tiny piece of ice that he's floating along on, puts him in his boat, gets him back over to the big boat, pushes him up the side, holding onto a rope, and he has people leaning down, and they grab the, boat, the dog, and they bring him up over the other side, and there's a big hooraying with all the people that they rescued the dog. And you probably, I see you're all smiling. Do you feel good about that? So the one, one of the ones after that, which I had seen before is an elephant one, uh, an elephant somewhere in an elephant country where that's fallen into a mud hole. Have you seen the elephant in the mud hole one? And uh, it's a small, it's like accidentally, maybe the elephant thought it was a good enough pond to go in, but it's a mud hole and she can't get out of there. 
And I got all kinds of people in there pushing and pulling, and it's hard to take an elephant out of a hole that it has, you know, sunk in up to the shoulders. Anyway, they push her up finally out of the hole, and she lumbers out onto the Sahara or wherever it is, and she's starting to lumber off. And you see in the distance the jungle. And undoubtedly she must trumpet out her sound because immediately from the jungle comes out running a baby elephant. Oh, you didn't even see it, see? And you all owed. And here's this big lumbering elephant coming along and this baby elephant is running out to it and comes running up to it and gets right underneath it and here's a mother with her trunk. And you're all smiling because doesn't that make you feel good? So I, my, one of my grandsons, I mean, he's a grown-up person, he's 19 years old, and was, was watching it with me. So I said, doesn't that make you feel good when you see that? He said, yeah, you know, you get to feel really happy. Didn't it make you all feel good? You don't know the elephant. I could have even made it up. It could have even not been true. But, I, but, but the, you know, Bambi is made up, but we, you know, we, we are always moved by it. So I said, don't you think everybody would be moved by this? Don't you think people are wired this way? He said, yeah, I think so. So in an oblique way, that's like an upward. So what I wanted to do, first of all, is uh, I wished when I came in and I saw the video thing going on out there, I thought, oh, I should have taken that video clip and uh, forwarded over here to the management office and then they could have arranged for that to play when people came. I mean you stay one half a minute you see all the courses that we're giving you don't have to see it over and over and over and over again like a marquee in a theater but we could come in and be looking at that and then sit down and meditate and I wonder if it wouldn't have a different I think it would have a different effect on how people were when they when they came and sat. They have been um, research has been research done where people come together like we are here and uh, the idea is that they're going to meditate together and sometimes they say ready, set, go, okay, everybody meditate. In another control study they said okay, think of something that somebody did in the last 24 hours that was a kindness to you. So it doesn't have to be like a monumental thing. It could be somebody held the door in the bank or somebody waved you into their lane on the freeway or somebody that you remember, somebody known or unknown to you did some kindness to you. Think about that for a minute. Think about how you felt. And then think about a time in the last 24 hours that you did something to other people that was a kindness. And... uh, just recreate that moment in your mind and see how you feel about that. And now, ready, set, go, we're going to meditate. And, uh, the, but they don't know that they're in different research groups. And the people who think about the kindness have less, um, have more positive things to say about the nature of their meditation. I felt steadier, I felt in some way better, it was measurable that it's good for you to dwell on kindness, whether it's yourself or somebody else's. Uh, There's a very famous um, 
line from the Buddha. This is, this is probably more or less exactly what it is. And it says, whatever the mind uh, ponders, whatever it dwells on, by that is it shaped. So, uh, I, and, and that's, that's more or less verbatim. I don't remember exactly verbatim after it. So if you ponder on bitter thoughts like, I'll get him back and he did that to me, you're likely to have a mind that's contracted and filled with tension and vengeance. If they think that was terrific of those people to get in there with that elephant and push it out of the mud, that must have been some hard job. It makes you feel good that somebody else got in there with the elephant or pushed them out. It's a very, you know, that it's a, it, it could be like a simplistic uh, teaching. You ought to look for the silver lining. But do you remember that? Do you know, anybody knows what I mean when I say look for the silver lining? What do I mean when I say that? Hmm? Two, who recognizes it as a song and can sing it? Go ahead, sing. No? Would you sing it with me? Whene'er a cloud appears in the sky, remember somewhere the sun is shining. And you can make it do the same for you if you will look for... Da-da-da-da. Okay. For the people who haven't been here before, this is already beginning to be like a silly place. Who has not been here before? And so we can say hello to you. What's your name? Oh, wow. From where in Minnesota? Yeah? Are you, is it colder there than here? Yeah. This is unusually cold for us. Everybody is saying another cold day. The high will be in the 50s. Like, that's a really... <laughs> it beats up minus 24, yeah. Well, I'm glad you're here. You're visiting relatives? or You came to see us. Fabulous. Okay. Did you just take a retreat? Oh, the poetry with Roger. Oh, great, great. Are you going to stay a while? That's great. And the workshops are great. You know, the, of course, there are the retreats up the hill. But these workshops, which we are just having this new building since last year, are great. We do this every week, every week. Michael, where are you? There you are. Michael's an old friend of mine. We're just doing who is new and hasn't been here before. So welcome, Mary. Who else do we not know? Yeah, what's your name? Malia. I think it's probably better to come. This is our new time, 10 o'clock, and it's probably better. Was it better for all the commutes, everything? But yes... Yes, good, 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 good. Uh, okay, Michael and... This, so, Michael, there you are, and you've come from Los Angeles. And... Karen, who's also come from Los Angeles with Michael. And Michael and I are old meditation buddies from 20 years ago, long time ago. More than 20. Wow. 
And Janice. There you go. Oh, there you are. Okay. Nice to see you. Huh? There you go. Uh, who else has not been here before ever on a Wednesday morning? Oh, Hunter. Did, so you want to tell everybody where you live? And how come you came today? Your mom came and you didn't. Remind everyone of your name. Heather. And who else? You don't know each other? I thought we do. Yeah. Are you? Diane what? Of course. I knew that. I just wanted to... Diane Merrill and I go back a thousand years, really. <laughs> Diane Merrill, Diane, we marched for the Women for Peace in the 1960s in Mill Valley. We were part of the Marin County Women for Peace, walking and pushing babies in baby buggies. Nice to see you. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Wow. Well, welcome. Glad you're here. Are you going to be here for a while? Oh, wow. Well, this happens every Wednesday. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Do you all know that? I'm so pleased about that. Every week, probably today, uh, what we do here is getting uh, recorded. And it plays starting tomorrow morning on... Um, dharmaseed.org and it's free and it has dharmaseed.org has for 20 or 30 years been archiving dharma talks by everybody and uh, who gives dharma talks and so you can look up by the teacher by the year sometimes I think I should look back I could look back 20 years and see what I was saying but then I thought maybe it will be embarrassing so I no, I do it I, but I, I, happen, I happen to know how many there are, or more or less, of me. So I say to my husband, should you outlive me? Should I predecease you? You could listen to an hour of me every day. <laughs> Said I'm probably going to skip that. I <laughs> did that enough. So is that everybody? Okay. Welcome. I'm very glad you're here. One of our... Um, um, other uh, rituals is after we've introduced who's new, we say one minute of hello to each other, so uh, or something like that, just so that people get to say something to somebody near them. So, ready, set, go. One minute of hello. <laughs>
Pass them around, I won't say anything. No, I actually, I actually love that. Every, every time we do that and everybody um, starts to talk, I, I, I have the memory, I often have the memory at that point where I say, say hello to people, uh, I often have the memory that when, oh, 30 or 40 years ago when, when Dharma first became interesting in the West and Westerners particularly began to go to Dharma classes, uh, uh, Buddhism, even the word Dharma, which means what the Buddha taught or that which is true, uh, was was quite new in the West, and it had a kind of a mystique of um, differentness about it. People didn't know a lot, and I'd find myself uh, uh, on more than one occasion, certainly back back east, visiting my family, which always stayed back east and never moved out. It was considered so radical to move out of the east coast. But I'd go to a wedding or another family thing and a big affair, and people would introduce me, and they'd say, this is my cousin Sylvia. She's a Buddhist teacher in the middle of a big partying after a wedding. This is my cousin Sylvia. She's a Buddhist teacher. They'd say, oh, hello. And in a... Somehow, the idea that Buddhist teachers do not speak in a regular tone of voice, or that they're, you know, they speak in every kind of a tone of voice, and they laugh, and they cry, and they get married, and they get divorced, they carry on just like everybody else. And I think that's pretty much changed. I love it, though, that people come in with a certain amount of decorum and sit here because it's a beautiful place to sit in the quiet. I really love it at the end of a long retreat or even a short retreat up at the top of the hill where for two days or eight days or ten days people have not said a single word to each other for keeping their own space. And then at the end there's a little ritual and we're saying now it's all right to talk and all of a sudden, you see all these people who looked like statues sitting there the whole five or ten days suddenly come to life and have faces and are animate. What we do usually in this two-hour space is we meet each other, um, we hear whatever news there is to tell that's newsworthy for this community. And then I usually, or Donald, if he's here on the days that I'm not here, give some instructions about how to meditate, or how to, mi- how to do mindfulness meditation, which is what we're mostly doing. And then we do it and sit for a half hour or so. Usually at the end of the half hour, uh, because... Uh, a while ago, it became clear to me and most other people as well that when my own mind becomes a little bit relaxed and quiet, I start to think about the people in my life who I'm thinking about for this. Something special up with them. They're, uh, this is a great time in their life or this is a really hard time in their life. And it seems to me that when my own preoccupied story self-preoccupied story settles down and relaxes a little bit the stories of other people people I know and sometimes people I don't know when they're people in the world who I know about because of newspapers 
that I think about them. And so we have some shared space in the end of the time where if people want to, uh, I'll say this is a good time to put into the space someone that you're thinking about. And people will do that. And then for the second hour of the time that we're together, uh, there's usually a topic that I want to talk about. The topic that's been on my mind a lot, uh, just because, because of everything and because of the new year, is about uh, about uh, uh, goodness and uh, morality and uh, people make New Year's resolutions and I was been thinking about resolves that uh, are uh, traditional for uh, people who study Dharma, make resolves to... Well, I'll tell you the resolves. I'm telling you all this because when we start to sit, I'd like to just, because it's the first Wednesday of the year, say the resolves out loud. Just it seems like a nice way to dedicate the space at the beginning of a new year. You can just think about them or let them be. One of the understandings is, again, what I said earlier about whatever the mind ponders by that is it's shaped, uh, that uh, many people have the habit of getting up every morning and saying these resolves. I know people who have them taped onto their bathroom mirror and they're brushing their teeth, they're reading or shaving or something. And that by whatever the mind ponders by that is it's shaped. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. That's really what I want to talk about um, and have you talk about with me because it's what I'm thinking about these days a lot and wondering about. But in the meantime, let's just sit. So I'm going to say those resolves right in the middle, in the beginning. But for people who haven't been, people who are not familiar with meditation instructions, really the best definition of mindfulness meditation is its attentiveness, moment to moment, to what's happening in your body, around your body, What's up? What what experience arises, and also along with that, what's your response to it? Sometimes we have startling thoughts. Sometimes we have soothing thoughts. And most of all, what what are we going to do with it? What can we do with it? What what would be the warm and loving and uh, balanced way to meet that moment? Lots of times we practice with the uh, mantra, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. You don't have to say that the whole time that you're sitting, but really the instruction is to be here. My breath is coming in and coming out and coming in. Lovely here and When it's gray, it seems to be pretty, and the room is comfortable, and I feel good. I'm glad I'm here. Oh, I wonder what will happen later, and tomorrow I have that thing coming up. Wait a minute, no. I'm here. My breath is coming in, and my breath is going out. It's not just breath, but it is just here. Just here. Let's try to just be here.
time in this new year. I want to dedicate this hall and our practice here Undertaking the Undertaking the practice of avoiding making those resolves. Faith that they're resolves that lead to happiness.
We've been coming nearer to the end of sitting quietly this morning. I wonder who comes to mind that Also thinking about Houston Smith, who just died in uh, at ninety-seven. Much to uh, open people's minds.
<laughs> so for all the people we mentioned, and for all of us for whom I am so grateful that we have each other to be with and this place to meet. Um, one four-year period to the next and into the, uh, hope a long future where we can meet and uh, talk about our hopes and prayers and wishes for well-being. Everyone that we didn't mention, may all beings everywhere be careful. all its inhabitants. think so much about how um, how important it is to me and I think to all of us uh, to have a place where there are people that we know and don't know that uh, we feel somehow are resonate to what we think is important and wonderful in the world. And where we can say things like, I'm dispirited, or my friends are dispirited, or I'm disappointed. And even I'm happy, great things have happened. But where we can go and talk about being a person. Someone, that, someone said to me yesterday, I can't even remember where it was, um, but so, and maybe and maybe it was Sunday when I was last here, but uh, somebody who hadn't met me before, but she said, uh, uh, but who had read a book I'd written, and she said, uh, I know your grandfather can't be living anymore, but uh, I read your books, and uh, I, I very much the best thing she said was that your grandfather made that remark about it being very hard to be a person. So uh, I felt really good about people with grandfathers. And my grandfather uh, spoke very poor English. He came to the United States from Eastern Europe when he was uh, 28 years old. And he never, he never could read or write in any language. And he got to speak English, but um, I heavily accented and uh, my household spoke Yiddish when I was growing up. But he would say when, when sad things would happen that would really tax the spirit, uh, some business work would fail or something would be bad in the family and uh, you had to get through it, he'd say, with a big sigh, he'd say, it's very hard to be a person. Uh, you know, it is very hard to be a person. All these things happen to you. So what I wanted to talk about today, I'm sure I've said all the um, ritual things that we say about it's good, well, we did all that. I think what I wanted to talk about, it's been on my mind, 
And uh, in the middle of sitting, I suddenly reshuffled how I was going to talk about it, which is what often happens to me. I sit here with all the material I've brought and all the material I planned I'd present in a certain way, and I'm not going to do that. I'll do it in another way because it reshuffled itself as I sat. So what to start with? That I mentioned the precepts in the beginning. We might want to think about that. You don't have to think. You can think about it now. You don't have to decide now. We used to periodically, at some once a month, uh, have a recitation of precepts. Period, where uh, we'd come together in some period of time. I would say each of those precepts. I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings, and I, I, which I said today. But I, I went right on and said the second and third and fourth and fifth. But uh, we found during those years that. Uh, just hearing it while you're sitting, and on the one hand, most of us, of course, you know, I, I, when I first heard the precepts in the context of being on a Buddhist retreat, and people said, now we'll ally ourselves with the precepts, I felt borderline insulted, like uh, that suggested that I wasn't already keeping those precepts. I mean, they're sort of bottom line precepts. I'm going to behave well in the world and not hurt people, and to say to people, now we're going to ask you to take on these precepts. I thought, what? But my teachers in the early days, uh, my teachers, my, my closest teachers are all a decade, decade and a half younger than I am. And they were more hip than I. And ethics were not terribly hip in the 60s or 70s. and They are hipper now. I'm happy to say. But it seemed to me like we already do that. But I've really come to realize over the years that uh, if I say or if someone else says and I reflect on, I uh, undertake the precept to, uh, I undertake the practice of not saying things that are exploitive or abusive, and then I sit there for a few minutes, I get a little bit of a um, spontaneous moral inventory it comes up in my mind. Well, as a matter of fact, you said this and that yesterday to your elder son, or you said this and that to some more this morning, or, you know, that something wasn't egregious, I'm happy to say, ever, but something that I would rather have said another way. Do you have a sense of what I mean? Sometimes you think, ah, I didn't say that exactly correctly. It's not horrible. But later on, you feel a little bit, ah, I just wish I had done that. And we lead fast lives. We can't stop every uh, every second and think it over. In the Buddha's instructions to Rahula, which I love to uh, bring up from time to time, because they're so dear, his son Rahula also ordained and became a monk, it is said. And in his instructions, he said, before doing anything, you should reflect. Is, is, is what I'm going to do right now, is that going to be for my good and everybody else's benefit? And if it is, do it. And if it isn't, don't do it. And in the middle of doing something, you should reflect, is what I'm currently doing for my benefit and everybody else's benefit? And if it is, continue. And if it isn't, stop and fix it up. And obviously, after doing something, one should reflect thus, da-da-da. And uh, when you first hear it, you sound, it sounds like you would never do anything because you'd be so busy reflecting before and during and after that you would be really, um, be a very staccato life by the time you reflected. 
So it, clearly it doesn't mean that. It, I think it must mean inclining the intention to live that way and every once in a while renewing that intention. And that whole idea is based on a concept of the Buddha, which I find in my life echoes to be true, that when I feel like I've done the right thing, I feel good. And when I feel I've done the wrong thing, I don't feel good. <laughs> this is a ridiculous thing, but this just came up in my mind. It is ridiculous. I was walking my dog yesterday in between those rainstorms. This is so bad. <laughs> it's, so mi- it's so minor. I'm walking my dog around my neighborhood in between rainstorms. I'm walking him. He's a very old dog, and he doesn't like to go out when it's wet. But I'm taking a break uh, between the rain, the rainfall to walk him so that he does those functions outside, not inside. And as we're walking along, he suddenly does a function right outside. And not even in the grass or where it's hidden, but in the middle of the street. And it's a kind, of, kind of messy. And I think to myself, it's going to rain in a minute, you know. It's a, and I, you know, it's cold. I have the plastic bags in my pocket. I look this way, there's nobody there. I look that way, there's nobody there. I think, it's going to rain, you know, it doesn't matter. But at that moment, I thought, I have got to pick up this stuff because I'm going to teach about precepts tomorrow. <laughs> and it'll come up in my mind as I'm teaching. So then I come home and my daughter is at my house and I said, you know, I was out walking the dog and it was raining and da-da-da, I'd tell the whole story. And she gets a horrified look. She said, you didn't leave it there. You did clean it up, didn't you? I said, I cleaned it up. Partly because it'll come up in my mind tomorrow and partly because I would tell you about it and then you would have a fit. But, but the fact that things stay in your mind, the fact that I cheated on my biology regents exam 60-some years ago is still in my mind. I know the question that I copied off that person's paper. It wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. But I wonder if everybody has that or only certain people have this because I am operating out of a framework that that His Holiness would say ethics is the normal thing in people. He said, I'm not interested for people to be a Buddhist. I'm interested that they should be an ethical person. And he's quite clear, more and more he's been teaching that recently, that being an ethical person, which, who, which means being a person who has sufficient reward from doing the right thing, whether or not people see you. I read somebody yesterday, I couldn't remember which quote it was, though, who said being a humanist means doing the right thing without any promise of a reward in a life after this life. And I thought to myself, that's really good. If I think people feel good after they do the right thing. Is that, do you all kind of feel that? When I told you, maybe everybody wasn't here in the very beginning. Were you all here when I was telling you about the elephant? Everybody saw that, about the elephant fell in a mud hole and all these people rescuing it. And the elephant getting rescued, and the baby elephant rushing out to meet its you know, long-lost mother. And everybody felt good. And my sense that everybody feels good about that. But this is one of the things that's been on my mind, so I want to talk to you about it. For a whole bunch of things that I want to tell you I've been thinking about, and I want to leave some time, honestly, for us to talk about it.
The Buddha said that's true for people. When the mind is relaxed and clear, the heart is open because spontaneously you see two things. You either see on this level of reality that everybody, all people at least, are people. And there's a person, and there's a person, and there's a person. And whether or not they look like you, or speak your language, or came from the same culture that you came from, any of those things, they're a person, and therefore they feel badly if they hurt somebody. They feel badly if they do something that harms somebody else. That that's a thing, that because a person thinks that person's a person, so they feel just as I do. When we were talking about the, the elephant being rescued and the baby elephant running, said, so didn't everybody feel good about that the baby elephant is back with its mother? We said, yes, yes, we feel good. Because that's what people feel good about. I also operate out of people, when they find out that they've hurt somebody, that they've hurt somebody, they feel bad about it. Not that, that they have pleasure out of hurting people. There's a story in the, in the, I'll tell you one more Buddhist story. The story from the, story is about the Buddha, about a person named Angulimala. It's never clear why it is that Angulimala has gone on a rampage of killing, but he's gone on a rampage of killing. And one of the things that he's, uh, Angulimala is a, a word that means a necklace made out of fingers. So he's gone on a rampage of killing and he cuts off a finger from the person that he's killed and he made a necklace out of it. So that's ghoulish. Um, But in the story, uh, he has killed 999 people and uh, someone tells him the information that if you kill the Buddha uh, and you get the thousandth finger, you're going to be safe from everything forever or some story that causes him to be eager to do that and he's running after the Buddha and the Buddha is walking slowly in that story and no matter how fast Angulimala is running after him, he can't catch him and he says he shouts out according to the story stop, stop Uh, and the Buddha says I've already stopped, when are you going to stop? in the story and then uh, but the stop that he has stopped is stopped having passions that, uh, that cause him to do terrible things like harm people. And Angulimala realizes in that moment how his life has been, um, his mind has been uh, pained by being on a constant rampage of wanting to be destructive. And he not only... He begs the pardon of the Buddha, but he begs the pardon of everybody else. And not only that, he becomes a monk and he ordains. And not only that, but he becomes enlightened. And all the time that he's a a monk with the Buddha, uh, the townspeople in the towns that they pass by recognize him. You know, there's Angulimala who did this and this terrible thing. And they throw things at him and they revile him and they hit him. And he's very, um, uh, uh, what, what would you call it, uh, not relaxed. Uh, he doesn't fight back. He accepts this. He accepts all of that because he feels he deserves it for what he did. 
and that it's not a problem for him to be reviled that way because he is genuinely changed and genuinely feels the depth of what he did. Ooh, how does that always happen? Is that the potential of human beings? I, I keep on teaching, when the mind is clear and relaxed, our hearts are generous. You know, there's, we could any of us tell a story of... Um, Somebody, uh, you go to a family party and somebody comes and says something, you know, offensive to you, hurts your feelings, and uh, you feel ire arise in you, and you're just about to say something back, and then you think, wait a minute, this is my cousin since when I was five years old, we, she and I were good friends when we were children, and I also noticed that she's drinking a little too much, and uh, so the ire goes away. And you don't say anything. That the ire is a moment of reflexive, ah, and then the bigger mind takes care of it, thinks it over, and has another impression. Becomes compassionate. Maybe I'll escort her outside for a breath of fresh air so she could feel better. Does everybody really have the potential of an Angulimala, or is that um, an idea that's part of 20th century Western psychology. Maybe it's not true. I'll tell you what I've been reading recently. Uh, first of all, I've been reading... Um, I read The Return. Who read this? Did you read The Return? It was one of the ten best on the New York Times bestseller list for last... or best books of last year. The Return is about um, a Libyan man who lives, has lived all his adult life in Great Britain. Who, who, it, it is a, it's his memoir. And his father was an activist in Libya uh, in the anti-government forces. And when this man was a boy, his father disappeared in the night in one of those sweeps where you, people come through and pick up the dissidents, and I'd see the 27 or 37 years that he continues to research what happened to his father, even when he is well assured that his father is no longer alive and he's not going to find him alive. And he's a wonderful, gripping writer. So that I, you know, I read it in two days because I couldn't put it down. I gave it to a friend who couldn't read it because. Uh, he said it's too terrible to read because it has, as he's interviewing other dissidents who lived or got out or had last seen his father, and he begins to piece together the kinds of maltreatment that his father must have had in these Libyan prisons for upwards of 20 years uh, That that is so painful to think about that the friend that I lent the book to said, I can't stand it. You know, I, I just, I, I got it. I'm really appreciating this man's art and his wonderful writing and uh, how touching it is that somebody's love could endure for so many years that you would make that as your thing that you do all the time, as a central lodestar of your life, but I can't read it. 
and I I went to the bookshelf and I found a book that I read now I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago called Man is Wolf to Man, Surviving the Gulag, about a man who not only survives a very long time in the Gulag, but survived, but is a Jew and survived the Hitler regime before that. So he, from one uh, incarceration to another in the most terrible way and survived, found his old family in the United States and uh, had been a physician and went back to get further training and became a plastic surgeon of considerable note and considerable uh, benevolence in teaching people. Not only survived terrible kinds of stuff, but as a person eager to donate his life to taking care of people, so his mind did not become corrupted. His body had been really terribly, terribly abused. I just am thinking about things. I'm thinking about um, the name of uh, the yearly uh, forum that um, Tricycle Magazine used to hold was called uh, Change Your Mind. Actually, uh, the first book I wrote, I, th I had the very clever idea of calling I Changed My Mind. I thought that was very clever. Uh, this was way before Classical Magazine said that. I just thought that was a good, uh, talking about and, uh, the Eightfold Path and going on retreats and how to practice and whatever insights I had had at that point. It's, it's 15 years ago now, I guess. Uh, Something like that. But I wanted to call it I Changed My Mind. And the marketing department uh, in, uh, at, at the time said, we love the book. We love every word of the book. The book is great. Publishing just the way you wrote, minor editing. But uh, I Changed My Mind is not a good title for a book. It's going to be confusing to people. It's going to be like who's on first. Like when you say to people, what's the name of your book? You say, I changed my mind. They say, okay, so what's the name of the book? You know, that, it doesn't make any sense. You, know, you can't do that. Uh, and I also wanted to call it Albuquerque Mind because one of the chapters in that book is called Albuquerque Mind because those of you who know Albuquerque may know that the weather changes very quickly in Albuquerque. And I was impressed once on teaching a retreat there for a week that we'd say, all right, now we're going to meditate for 20 minutes. And you open your eyes and it's snowing. And you meditate and then you go for a 20-minute walk and the sun comes out. And you sit down, the sun is shining. 20 minutes later, it's blowing and raining again. So I wanted to say that the mind is something like Albuquerque. It keeps changing every minute. I thought that was so clever. Like, uh, what's his name? McMurtry. He's got good names for for... West, all those westerns that he wrote. Now they didn't like that either. They wanted to call it "It's Easier Than You Think," which, anyway, I think is a lie because it's harder than you can imagine. You know that uh, you know to change your mind. Honestly, I always think about you know making a proviso or a, what do you call it, a caveat underneath. But because they said. Uh, the words that sell books are easier, happy, uh, fast, simple. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, 
it's easier than you think. Yeah, so it's easy, the Buddhist way to happiness. So that's got two words in happy and easy. Uh, easier even than you might have thought. Anyway, it was, apparently it didn't deter people, but I, I didn't like that because I thought it wasn't exactly true. It is very easy to get it. If you say, you know, if your mind is stuck with something and it's just bugging you, bugging you, bugging you, if you somehow can let go of it, of being attached to it, of the way that you're connected to it, then you won't suffer anymore. Who doesn't get that? Everybody gets that. Okay, you know, they get it. But they can't do it. I mean, it's just you can get understand. It's good for somebody else to do that, but not for me. I, I actually understood that some years later, uh, or earlier, I don't, I don't even remember at this point, or probably even earlier, first time, first time I really even got that, is um, there had been a story in the news. No, it must be a long time ago. must be. Anyway, here's the story. doesn't matter when it happened. could have happened yesterday. But I, anyway, I went on retreat in Massachusetts for 10 days, maybe. And just before I went on retreat, I heard that um, a boy in Chicago had died of uh, leukemia because his parents had refused treatment. Yeah, I see a lot of people remember that particular time. His parents had refused treatment because they were interested in laetrile treatments, which they were getting from Mexico. And they felt that uh, Western medicine was no good and that they were kind of new age people, whatever that meant. And they believed in this alternative. And so the, against, they got a court order, but the people took the child to Mexico and did not treat him with the leukemia treatment, which is quite reliable treatment for childhood leukemia. And the boy died. And I became so upset. I was obsessed with the upset. I remember I was sitting on retreat for day after day, and I'd sit down and I'd kind of make myself relax or try to be, and try to be with my breathing and with my body. And I, uh, immediately that story about they didn't do it and they should have done it. And what kind of parents would do a thing like that? And I can't believe it. And I was mad at the parents and I was mad at all the New Age magazines and I was bad about all the alternative lifestyles and I was mad about everything in the world that could have supported them into doing the, the decision that they made. And one day in the middle of, after several days of really being stormed up in my mind, my mind, maybe accidentally and maybe because I was making some effort to calm it down, my mind suddenly relaxed and I felt so sad for them. I just really felt so sad. At that moment, I realized they were doing what was the most loving thing that they believed they could do. They really believed it. And they did that, and it didn't work. And here's their child is dead, and surely they've, they, they'll, they'll remember it their whole life. And, you know, people get ideas that they believe, and they're not good ideas sometimes. But, and, but, to, be, to, but, but to be angry with them because they did that. And I realized that the anger really came from my own fears about their parents that, don't take good care of their children, 
what what am I not seeing about what I'm doing for my children? Or what might I accidentally be doing that might not be for the benefit of my children? Or how about all of my friends? Or how about myself who are at that point practicing yoga and being a vegetarian and doing all kinds of what were for me new age things, but my new age was good. Their new age was not good. But all of a sudden when I, I, I had this flash of realizing how badly those parents must feel, all of a sudden a moment of tremendous empathy and I changed my mind. And I stopped being mad at them, absolutely stopped being mad at them. Every time we stop being mad at somebody, we change our mind. But I can change my, is that changing your opinion or is it changing your mind? The reason I want to tell you this is that I really am thinking about, um, as you all are, about the tenor of the times, about the level of what's become the level of accept, acceptable discourse. Think about taking a, a, a uh, uh, precept that says, I'm not going to use speech that's abusive or uh, uh, exploitive. We've just lived through a year of exploitive and abusive speech that everybody listens to and all kinds of stories now on the uh, on the news about the level of rough talk in children in school now that somehow has there are several things on my mind are people normally really good is the Dalai Lama right you know if only people could see clearly I say that sometimes to my friends that are Dharma buddies, and I say, maybe it's not true that human beings are, you know, one of the, you know, lovely, that human beings have this capacity for compassion, and they're only deluded if they're not compassionate. They have to be educated and woken up. Is that true, or is that just something that we like to say? or like to believe, or imagine because it's our own, um, it's our own mindset. I was thinking this morning about being a conservative, of being voting Republican or voting Democrat. Nobody, nobody thinks of themselves as Republican and Democrat. Thinking now of a conservative or a, uh, a progressive. So from my point of view, I grew up with the people who think that progressive sounds much better than conservative. I mean, hey, it's a better word, you know, progressing into the future. Conservative means, you know, not getting any place. But that's just my overlay, you know. That's that's where I grew up. There's a... Uh, I can't remember Tom Hartman's book about what's a pro- pro- progressive and what's a conservative. But I read it, and I thought, oh, sure, the good guys are me and the bad guys are the other people who don't share with other people and who don't, da-da-da. And I realized I have a whole mindset about that in my adult life, longer than I'm, it would be, I'm embarrassed to admit. I've kind of thought that I would not like people who didn't vote the way I do because they have to be not nice people. Because not, if they were nice people, they would vote in this more kindly way. It's just a view. I actually think it's true, but it's because I'm still blocked by that view, I think. I am reading a book called The Undoing Project. Who read this? 
read this, just came out, and it's just on the bestseller list, and everybody's making a big fuss about it. So I'm reading it. And the first chapter has to do with being able to see that we never we say I'm going to look at I'm going to weigh the evidence with an open mind. So the first the the idea here is we don't have an open mind. We have always hidden biases, and we don't know what they are. So one of them, Ace, you would know this. Um, Yao Ming, the seven foot three center guard for somebody or other, huh? Houston. Used to play for Houston. He was drafted by Houston after being passed over. He's a basketball player. Passed over by several other teams. And he had all the stats for, to make him look like a really, like he should have been the first draft. And in fact, he did second in the NBA in his first year of professional play. But nobody drafted him until the 35th draft or something or other. And everybody knew those stats. And when they came to figure it all out, it's that nobody could imagine that an Asian could play that well. It was just part of, he was seven foot three. He was gigantic, yeah. His hand was a foot long or something. You know, the gigantic man who had played and played very well. They saw him play, but they so had, when they feed this all out, there are biases. You're supposed to, we don't know any Asian basketball players. So, but he he was second scorer in the whole NBA. That's a the more. That's my whole basketball that I know. I don't know any more of that. And I, huh? And I learned that yesterday here, and I, I learned that yesterday in this book from uh, from discovering, by the way, that how they then uh, changed the analytics for how they rate people and how they're going to figure out people. Because they realize you could rate everybody to death, and you could have down, and they do have down to the last decimal point how who gets the, who gets their first foot off the ground in making a move, the fastest, you know, which counts as much as how tall or how this or how that. But in the end, it turns out that it's it's all of those analytics plus who has the gut feeling that this person is going to play amazingly well so that which is which is supported by who knows what so when you say i'm making up my mind i'm totally impartial never change your mind from something here's the other thing that i wanted to say and i want to ask you some things about what you think um judy clark has just been pardoned by um andrew cuomo uh, do you know Judy Clark? has been serving time in uh, Bedford Hills, uh, what do they call it, correctional facility in New York State for 37 years, I think. She was part of the Weathermen. Uh, the other woman who was arrested with her did 20 years and got out of jail because she had counsel when she was, she, she, Clark, when she was 21 years old, joined the Weathermen because she had 
government and not trusting the government and needing to bring down the government. And she really was very sincere about her belief. She was so sincere that she refused counsel. Weathermen were a radical group of um, students who committed a crime, a robbery, in which, and during that robbery, they were caught, and during the robbery, three people were killed, and two of them are policemen. And as a, there's a thing, if you kill a policeman, You're there. Judy Clark did not kill the policeman. Judy Clark was a driver of the car. She was a driver of a getaway car that was around the corner. But she spends 37 years in jail. And she had a child at the time. Her child that she had at the time is a, uh, a lecturer at Stanford now. So the child has grown. Judy Clark is 67 years old. Uh, runs the program for women with young babies at Bedford Hills because if you if you're arrested in New York and go to jail for for a capital crime and you happen to be pregnant or you have a young baby you can have it in jail and keep it with you until the baby is two years old they have a whole building for that and she's in charge of the uh, teaching mother child care and running that whole unit she's gotten a um, she, of course, finished her college degree. She has a master's degree. She's written all kinds of she, And she has not been able to get out of jail because she has a 75-year-old. Uh, and uh, every time she comes up for parole or, or anything, uh, shortening the sentence, the local populace that has not changed their mind about if you kill a policeman, you never get I've, Over the years, I've no, I know her, I've met her. When I've, I have a friend who's the Jewish chaplain at uh, Bedford Hills. So I've met Judy Clark on a variety of occasions. There have been, over the years, all kinds of efforts, petitions signed by dozens, hundreds of clergy about it would be all right to let Judy Clark out of prison. And she hasn't gotten out of prison. So now, in this morning's paper, it says, governors do not normally, if ever, have to have private visits with pr prisoners. But one evening in September, Judith Clark, the former radical who drove a getaway car in the 1981 Brinks armored car robbery that left three people dead, was summoned from a college program at the Bedford Hills Women's Program. She did not know who she would be seeing until she was brought into a room used for high school classes. About 10 minutes later, Governor Andrew M. Cuomo arrived. They sat down. He wanted to know about her crime and her motivation. Were you on drugs, Mr. Cuomo asked? No, Ms. Clark replied, I was on politics. <laughs> now, Mrs. Clark, Ms. Clark, now 67, 
has already served 35 years of a minimum 75-year term. She was not eligible to seek parole until 2056. Her only hope of getting out during her lifetime was a grant of clemency from the governor, a power Mr. Cuomo had almost never exercised in nearly six years in office. The governor announced Friday that he was reducing Ms. Clark's minimum serve sentence to 35 years, meaning not that she will be released, but that she will be eligible for parole in the first quarter of 2017. She is among 113 people who received various forms of clemency from Mr. Cuomo. In a single day, he reversed decades of disuse of that power, using what his office said was the largest number of such grants by a New York governor. I wanted to see if there was some, because somewhere else, I read about the response from the sons of, whoops. The, the response of her sons. Um, if Ms. Clark is released by the parole board, she has a hell of a case, said Mr. Cuomo, who appoints the board. She hopes to work at a primary health care clinic for the disadvantaged and with our children, H-O-U-R, which helps mothers who are incarcerated. Mr. Cuomo said he was not worried about the paying a political price for commuting Ms. Clark's sentence. I've gotten to a point where if I can sleep at night, I'm happy. I can sleep at night with this. I believe showing mercy and justice and compassion and forgiveness is the right signal. You can't make them happy. You live your life by them and them, and you're lost. Uh, I read also, and I don't see it right here, uh, the uh, uh, response of the son of one of the slain officers who said, um, it's not going to make me any less sad that my father died to let her out of prison. And uh, it's not going to make, uh, and it's not good for uh, Harriet. She was So it's all right with me if she gets out. You know, people change their minds. The, re the, thing, the reason I read about this is I read in another place a, a longer uh, discussion of what Judy Clark said. I don't have that ideology now. I have a different ideology. Oliver Twist. Oliver... Uh, becomes a pickpocket because the people who take him in and are good to him are pickpockets. Become a bad boy or did he behave properly in his family? Uh, I got candlesticks. Loaf of bread. It's the candlesticks that go, go back. The candlesticks, the priest says, he, I gave it to him. Then he steals a loaf of bread. And then he spends his whole life being haunted by um, Javert, Monsieur Javert. What, you know, are there good people who do bad things? Or, um, oh, I wanted to just end with a little bit of Houston Smith again. Houston Smith 
In his book, The Religions of Man, said religions of man. But every religion that's endured has a code of ethics. So that every religion has been a, uh, a socializing aspect in a, in a society, and they have a can't take other people's stuff, among other things. He says it in a very colloquial way. He says that most code of ethics says you can accumulate as much on your pile as you want to. Or you can, uh, also says you're not supposed to covet the sexual partner of your neighbor. also says you shouldn't speak in a way that's upsetting or insulting or harmful. It doesn't say you shouldn't go on picnics or you shouldn't go to the movies or you shouldn't sweep the front walk. It says things that people might feel like doing. You know, that they're, they're prohibitions because those are the kind of things that people might accidentally feel. make a prohibition about you have to stand up in the morning with your left foot out or, or before you write. I mean, it doesn't make any sense in terms of helping a society. But don't covet what your neighbor has. Don't take their stuff. Don't take their person. Uh, don't confuse yourself. By the way, that's how I like to understand the line. I said I took a vow after the election that I'm not going to listen to cable news anymore. I had big applause from people, all of whom, it's like I could have said I gave up some terrible um, addiction, because I did give up a terrible addiction. It's really, even if it didn't make me a terrible person, it wasn't good for my mind. My mind feels a whole lot better. It feels a whole lot better. I don't need to have. I have to stay up. First of all, I stay up to the minute every morning. <laughs> every morning, the New York Times comes to my house. I'm pretty well up to the minute. gay man to adopt little girls. I used to think that was terrible. Are you, first of all, are you a gay man or no? Okay, no, no, but I, I remember when people were writing commentary about why it was terrible. Of course it's fine, yeah. Thank you very much, yeah.
last for a, a month or six months. We ended up running together for five years. And by the end of it, I had him reading the Buddha's discourse on views. <laughs> and he had me reading um, the uh, Book of Mormon. And I, don't, I suspect that he felt the Buddha's discourse was as much nonsense as I felt the Book of Mormon was. <laughs> but it, I changed my mind about who people are. People are not their views. Views are a separate entity that infects them like disease. Oh, bravo. Honestly, honestly, really. Bravo. What's your name? My name is Jeff. Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it is absolutely. I am a. Really, I believe it. I believe it. You know, I, I was sitting, this is such a story because it only could have happened in this particular circumstance. I was on a bus coming, going from Aspen to Grand Junction 25 years ago or whenever it was that CNN went live with, and two people were behind me on this bus and I was eavesdropping, talking loud about the new jobs that they were going back to, and they were with a new fledgling uh, uh, network that was going to break with the tradition of networks that had talent. And said, instead of talent, we don't have to have talent anymore. We're just going to have news, and we'll make it entertainment. And the people will become addicted to it. And they did. So, but it, was, it, it, you know, it wasn't accidental that it happened. It happened... Are you still driving long haul? I am. Good for <laughs> I hope you have very good weather. <laughs> Are Buddhists. Ah. <laughs> so, and your Dharma system. I wanted to say, first of all, that to conserve as a conservative, you could be conserving the earth, you could be conserving things. So it's not the word, it's the way they are. <laughs> but I also change my mind about people that commit suicide. I just had a cousin that, that did that, and I've just thought about it a lot. And I realized after a really bad divorce and waking up really miserable that if I were to wake up feeling like that was the way I was going to wake up every day of my life, I can really understand it. I really changed. I used to be really angry when people did that. And now I really understand their discomfort and lack of options.
much reading and, and not very much television. After much reading and not very much television over the last several months, I've changed my mind about the view that the people who were voting for Trump were uh, simply stupid or deluded. And in fact, as I... Uh, perhaps stupid and deluded and uninformed. <laughs> I wanted to say that I'm in the process of changing my mind. My son went to college and really wasn't enjoying it very much. And of course, I think he absolutely applied for an internship with a major and got the internship and fell in love with what he Maja. Maja. Thirty years ago, Maja, my uh, elder daughter was not finished with college, and she's got a job. She got the offer of a job um, that she really wanted to take in the field she really wanted to enter, and her parents said, no, you have to finish your college degree. Uh, many times, since, and she made a career in that field, but... I think she would have been better off had she taken that internship without going into her. She really wouldn't be happy if I were doing her whole employment vita worldwide. But 
But you, I'm, I'm very happy to tell you, I feel like you have redeemed a mistake that I made. So from the Buddhist, when you step into the absolute where everybody is everybody and we've all been each other's sister and brother and mother and child and had each other's life, you just rectified a small piece of mind that I would do differently if I were doing it now. So brava, <laughs> good for you. And isn't it interesting, anyway, what people get really excited about doing? Who would have thought, you know? Who would have thought? So, does everybody like this new coming at 10 instead of 9? Is that easier? Yes? Okay. We'll tell them. Yeah. All right. I think I'm not here next week. There was another book I was going to tell you. Donald's back next week. And I'm up the hill next week teaching a meta retreat. Uh, and I, I'll be back after probably two weeks. But uh, I really am working on this. I changed my mind because how do you know, you know, what changes? Does an opinion just, well, we just had an opinion falls away, a view falls away, and then you don't have that view anymore. You have a better understanding. Or you see through a false view. Maybe that's it. The view I had that was an untrue view. Um, maybe we do that our whole life. Anyway, what I was hopeful to do as we were in this beginning of the year, I didn't do it today, but next time, in the beginning, still the beginning of the year, is uh, talk again about the, uh, the list of ten paramitas and... Uh, 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 the uh, qualities of heart that the Buddha really talked about developing since we're talking about goodness and kindness. And, and the first of them is generosity. And I'd just like to talk about generosity in all its forms. Not so much in the form of, I'm sure we're all generous with giving stuff and helping out when we can and contributing to. I th I'm thinking more of generosity of spirit, which is maybe letting go of all old views that generosity is the feeling of uh, being able to, that I don't need this. I don't need this view that limits. I don't need an old grudge. I don't need... Anyway, that's, I think, what I'll talk about when we're back here again. Because, uh, uh, anyway, first of all, because it's the beginning of the year and it seems nice to talk about those foundational things. And uh, generosity is the first of them. And in, uh, oh, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago, James Barras and I were in uh, India meeting a particular teacher in the Advaita tradition. And he said, what do you teach at Spirit Rock? And James said, well, we primarily teach about generosity. And he said, the, this particular teacher, he said, there is no such thing as generosity. So... James and I, that could be like the, like, like the uh, what do you call it? the trailer for the movie. There's no such thing as generosity. You come back and I'll tell you why he said there's no such thing as generosity. <laughs> okay, and I'll see you in two weeks or three, whatever it is. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Happy New Year.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.